Thanks, Chad. Hey, good morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 17. That's where we're going to be. If you're visiting with us, I'll, I'll add my welcome to, to Todd's and to Chad's. We're glad you're here. And we have been uh, looking uh, at Genesis. We started in Genesis chapter 12. And our aim in this series is that we are looking at um, what God calls himself. He, when he introduces himself to Moses and to the Israelites, he called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we're wanting to see who is this God that calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the way to look at that is to look at those three men. They're called the patriarchs. And we find them beginning in Genesis 12 and goes all the way to the end of Genesis. And we are in kind of the third um, phase, if you will, of Abraham's walk with God. The, the th sort of third um, moment or marker this morning in Abraham's walk with God. It makes me think about, I, I don't know how many of you are grandparents or how many of your parents maybe are grandparents. This is where I am. I'm not a grandparent. I'm, I'm a parent, but my mom at some point transitioned from mom to nana. I even call her that when I'm talking to my children. Uh, and, it's, and it's strange to me how different uh, my mom and my children's nana is. I know, uh, on the one hand, that that is the same woman, but they talk about her, and I think, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> oh, we had so much fun at Nana's. She was great. She made all this stuff and let us stay up late, and, um, and she wants to take me shopping, and I'm like, I, who are you talking about? I lived with that woman 18 years. I don't remember any of that going on. She was the mother of five. She's the Nana of 18. This mom to Nana was a natural progression for her from a dad to a people or whatever you, you, know, you, you get called. And it's this natural progression. I mean, it's kind of always there. It's always there in seed form. It's just when those grandchildren start coming, that gets to emerge. Well, a little bit of that is happening in our passage today. I'll tell you a couple of things about the passage as a whole, and then I want to walk through it. We'll just take a few verses at a time, see how far we get. But the text in Genesis 17, while we're looking at, you know, the life of Abraham now, we'll hit Isaac and then we'll hit uh, Jacob, but we're, this text, Genesis 17, it's all about God. God's all over this passage, and he's going to make essentially three um, speeches, if you will. And you, you find it with the marker, and God said. And you find it in verse 3, you'll find it in verse 9, find it again in verse 15. It's all about God, but we find it's all about not only God, but a God who is a covenant God. First time the word covenant's used, we saw it last week in Genesis 15. It's used once there, here in this chapter. It'll be used 13 times. 
want you to notice as we go through it too. How many times God says, I will. All the things that God will do. Well, we've already encountered in Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abram. In Genesis 15, we saw last week, he ratifies those promises in a covenant. He makes a covenant with Abram, and he assumes both halves of the covenant. Well, this morning, the promises haven't changed at all. In fact, God's going to restate all the promises that he made, and he's going to actually elaborate on the promises, and then he's going to introduce a sign of this covenant that they're in. And at the end, he's going to clarify one confusion that has gotten Abram in trouble, and we will see what that is. Notice there are names in the chapter. God's going to name himself. Abram's going to have his name changed. Sarah's going to have her name changed, and we're introduced to the name of Isaac, and we'll get into all of that. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. I want you to see a couple of things there. We get a marker of Abram's age right at the beginning. When we were first introduced to him, he's 75 years old. Next time we see him, he's 86 or uh, 86 years old. In fact, at the end of chapter 16, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, if you look up one verse, you see in chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, that's a whole... That's a mouthful. And then the very next verse, when Abram was 99 years old. So I went to seminary. I didn't go to math school, but I asked a friend, and he told me that's 13 years that has passed between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. 13 years. A lot has happened in that intervening 13 years. If you remember last week, Genesis 15, Abram hears from God that he will have a son. It won't be a servant who becomes his heir. It will be a son. It will be one of his own seed. And so what happens in 15 is that he believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And this is a great scene that happened. And then 16 opens up. And Sarah and Abram come up with an idea, a very culturally acceptable idea in his day. And Sarah says, hey, listen, I, neither one of us are getting any younger. But I have a maidservant named Hagar. If, if you'll spend the night with her and then she gets pregnant and gives birth, this would be a child of your seed, and in the local custom, 
child would be my child too. We'd raise it. She'd be the nursemaid, the, you know, all these things. And so they think, well, this is a good idea. Seems expedient. So they do. And chapter 16 takes 16 verses to talk about this sort of um, um, Abraham's divine assistance program. I don't know if you spend much time thinking about how you might help God out with the things you really want in your life. But I know I'm guilty of that. And what Abram does is ends up having a son with his maidservant, Hagar, and um, shock of really all shocks, it turns into a problem in his family. Sarah and Hagar get sideways with each other, and that actually never changes. But nonetheless, from the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17, Abram has spent 13 years raising a son named Ishmael. Raising a son named God Hears. And so at 99 years old, God comes to talk to Abram again about the promises that he's made. Some have talked about these 13 years as quiet years. Silent years. Well, you actually don't know what happens between the end of 16 and the beginning of 17. We, oh, we can fill in the blanks, right? I mean, a child was born, learned to walk, learned to talk, started t-ball, maybe Abram coached soccer, got through elementary school, started uh, middle school, in the awkward teen years, all those things that if you're a parent or you've lived the last 13 years, you can fill in the blanks with all of the very ordinary things that take place in life. And sometimes it is easy for us to stop and wonder, where is God in the midst of all of these ordinary things? I've cooked 100 dinners for my family since the last time I felt like God spoke to me. I've coached three seasons of t-ball. Am I going to have to do it again? I've been at my job for nine years. I've all of these things, I'm, you know, eight car payments away from paying off my car, if anybody ever does that. And these are the things, the ordinary things in our lives. And sometimes we wonder, where is God in all of that? Sometimes, listen, we, if we're honest, we feel like we're forgotten by God. If we're honest, it's easy to say, we've, you know what? We've kind of forgotten about God. But I want you to see that while this is a story in many ways of Abram's faith, it's a story of God's faithfulness 
to us. And that 13 years wasn't without import. It wasn't without God continuing to work in Abram's life to fulfill the promises that he made. It just is a reminder, these things don't happen on our timeline. They happen on the timeline of one who is eternal and sovereign and Lord of lords and King of kings and over everything that lives and breathes and has movement. That's who he is. The pace of our world picks up exponentially. But that does not mean that God is obligated to our expectations of how we think he ought to work and when we think he ought to work. You know, so it's interesting. He comes and he introduces himself. And of course, Abram knows who he is, absolutely. But he says to him, I am God Almighty. And if you want to know, so what's the word behind that? What's the, you know, what, what, what's the Hebrew word behind that? We can all thank Amy Grant, all right? It's El Shaddai. Now you're going to be stuck with that song in your head all week as well. And he says, I'm El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And then he says, I want you to walk before me and I want you to be blameless. Now let's unpack those two things and then we'll... We'll make a little more haste through the passage. God Almighty. Forty-eight times that shows up in the Old Testament, five times in Genesis. It's most often used in the book of Job. God Almighty. It's interesting as we think about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is who God says he is to Moses and to the Israelites. In Exodus 6, God says to Moses, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. There's going to be a, a bit about the fulfillment of everything I promised them that you guys are going to experience. To them, I told them. I presented myself. I wanted them to know I am God Almighty. It's as if this. It's like God appeared to Abram and said, listen, all power is mine. All the power in the heavens, all the power on earth, and, and as I come to you as God Almighty, and I want you to walk with me, and I want you to be blameless before me, I am giving myself to you as I want you to give yourself to me. I have all power on heaven and earth, and I am giving that to you by virtue of this relationship. I laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens, all that you see at night, those are the works of my hands. I 
bring out the starry hosts. I use all my creation to accomplish my will. That's who I am. And I want you to walk with me. And I want you to be blameless. The, the walking blameless is what I want you to be. It's two imperatives there. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me in, in an openness. Live your life before me. Live your life with me in view. I don't want you to take your eyes off of me. I don't want you to ever doubt that I'm there. I want you to walk with me. And in that, I want you to be blameless. I want to talk about this for a second. This, sometimes we read this. You hear in Leviticus, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You hear Peter say the same thing. Be perfect. Be blameless. Now, I, listen, there is no way that this word tamim could mean a moral perfection. God's command can't be a moral perfection. I mean, yes, that is the bar. That is the high bar that we are called to. But what we talked about last week is God took Abram's faith and he counted it as that righteousness. I want you to walk with me. I want you to be blameless. I want you to be who you are. Abram, I want you to be who I've said you are. In some ways, this word could be translated just as well, wholeheartedness. I want you to walk with me, and I want you to walk with me with all your heart. Place yourself under me. Walk before me. I want to be your guide. I want to be your protection. I want to be your wisdom. I want to care for you. I want you, Abram, to trust me with your life. And I think there's this correlation between as we walk with God, we walk in all that he says we are because of his son, Jesus. Listen, your view of God determines the way you walk and how whole you are as a person. This is why God shows up, I am God Almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful. My watch was wanting to define omnipotent for me. <laughs> all power, all of my power. I'm availing myself to you in relationship, Abraham. And the question becomes, your view of God determines your walk before him. If you have a low view of God, you're not going to have a wholehearted, whole life walk before him. The higher your view, the greater your understanding of who God is, not knowledge for knowledge's sake, 
but the kind of knowledge that draws you into, brings you to a place of worship like we see Abram is brought in, in verse 3. That this understanding of who God is, this high view of God, brings us to a place of worship. Worship. Worship has a dramatic effect on the walk in our life. What's your view? Listen, where do you get your view of God? You get your view of God from what God revealed about himself. Where has God revealed himself? He's revealed himself in his word. As you read God's word, I think there are questions that always ask. I mean, there's three simple questions. You read through God's word. You take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day. I don't even hardly care where you start in the Bible. Just pick it up. Find a book, begin to read through the book, and ask these questions. What do I see when I open this, when I read this? What's here? What stands out to me? What have I seen before but I see in a new way? What have I never seen before? What do I not understand? What questions does this bring to mind? Look at the text and read the text and ask yourself, what in the world do I see here? I think another good question to ask right after you've asked that is, why wonder why that's here? Of all the things that could be in Scripture, of all the things that could be there, why is this here? And then it brings us to the natural third question. And what does this tell me about who God is? You know, I think when we go to Scripture, we ask those questions. We ask the questions the text means us to ask. It transforms how we read God's Word. So many times we go and we're like, okay, man, I need a word. And I look in here and I'll find something and think, no, that didn't fit. So I'll go to another spot. I'm looking for something about me to get me through the day. And listen, I understand. That's fine. We all do that at certain times. There's a there's a place for us in our life to cultivate reading through God's Word, asking what's there, why is it there, and what does this tell me about who God is? And I'll tell you, in your Christian life, this sanctification, this becoming who you already are in Jesus does not happen apart from knowing who God is. And we won't know who God is apart from what God has revealed about himself. I encourage you. If it's been a long time since you've picked up your Bible or a long time since you've figured out something to read, I encourage you this week, jump right in there. Jump right in the middle of it. And see what God doesn't reveal to you about himself. It's, it's the God who's asking, the, the God Almighty who's asking Abram, come walk with me. Come live your life wholehearted before me. Well, from there, verse 2, the covenants that he's promised, they're going to move into Abram's neighborhood. 
At this point, they've been promises. They've been promises out there. They've been promises that God has made. Abraham has believed. Here in chapter 17, those promises are going to begin to move into Abram's neighborhood. He says that I may make covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. This is a Hebrew way of saying he worshiped. And then notice God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. You can read verse 5 this way, and so because of that, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of of nations. Verse 6, I'll make you exceedingly faithful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Tell you a little bit about what's going on. Abram means exalted father. Now he's 99 years old. He has a son by his maidservant. Even before that though, Abram would walk around as an 86-year-old man. People say, what's your name? Exalted father. Oh, how many children do you have? Well, I don't have any children. Hmm. That's an unfortunate name then, right? This is what's going on. Now God's saying to him, not only you, you, you were exalted, Father, here's what you're going to be. I'm changing your name to Father of Multitudes. Imagine Abram comes out one day, all his friends are there, say, well, God changed my name. They're like, finally. Let me guess, childless. Or no, something else. He says, no, it's Abraham. Father of multitudes. There's something funny in that? There's something that probably causes Abram to catch every day. Well, what's your name? Well, father of multitudes. This is what God names him. All of a sudden now, the covenants that have been out there and out there have moved into his neighborhood, and it begins with a name change. And then in verse 6, he says, oh, yeah, now here's some elaboration. Kings are going to come from you. What he doesn't know at the time is there will be good kings and there will be bad kings, and then there will be a final king. There will be David that comes. There will be the Palm Sunday as Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, and as Matthew says, the Son of Abraham will ride into Jerusalem. In Revelation 19, that Son will return in His second coming, riding on a white horse and written upon His robe and upon His leg as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when God says this to Abram in chapter 17, verse 6 of Genesis, in his mind, already is the second coming of the king 
who would come from Abram. He goes on to tell him, 7 and 8, Now establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you and your offspring after you the land of of your sojourners, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Two things to say about this. One everlasting means it doesn't end. And because it doesn't end and we live in a fallen world where sin, the consequence of sin brings death, people die, it means that there will always need to be a people and always need to be a people that have come from Abraham and God has always secured this and sometimes he calls it a remnant. But the people promised are always there. But in verse 8 he says specifically to Abram, I will give you this land. The land that currently the Canaanites live in and they will for another 400 years unchallenged. But I will give it to you. So when God makes an everlasting covenant with Abram, here's what it means. Not only does it not end, it means it requires a resurrection. That in God's mind, he fully knows Yes, I will fulfill this to Abram. I will give him all this land. This will be his, and I will raise him from the dead to do it. And many of those that will come from him, one will come from him that is also mine. And of those kings, one of those kings, he will be my son as well. And he will be the first fruit of the resurrection, the promise for all of us that death does not win and that God's covenants are everlasting. Well, then God's going to give him a sign of the covenant. Here's the sign, Abram. We've made this covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. It is a unilateral covenant, but there is a sign, and I want you to participate in the sign. I want you, I want you as you walk before me, And as you're blameless, your wholeheartedness towards me, I want you to participate with me. I I want you to be a part of the sign. And so he says in verse 9, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Now, here's a first observation. Obviously, Abram didn't get to pick the sign. Because if he had, he would have said, I'll take Noah's sign. I'll take the rainbow. I like that one. But God says, no, this is the sign. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's a sign, it's an outward sign, it's a physical sign. But it represents something inward and spiritual. A sign of what? Well, it's a sign of whose you are and why you are whose you are. 
Later on, Moses is going to tell the Israelites, listen, this circumcision in Deuteronomy 30, it really, it really means a circumcision of the heart. It really cares more about what's going on inward and spiritual. It's when a hard heart becomes soft, when a rebellious heart becomes a believing heart. When a heart filled with guilt and shame and bitterness and self-protection and selfishness, when that heart is transformed in such a way that you use that heart now to love others. It's not a ritual, although to be sure it can certainly become a ritual. An outward, physical, and empty ritual. That means nothing. Or it can be that that signifies and brings remembrance to that which you committed yourself. I attended two weddings this weekend. One officiated, one on Friday night, came to one here yesterday afternoon. And in both of those weddings, you, I witnessed a bride and a groom after taking their vows, they exchanged rings. The symbol and token of faithfulness and love. And the ring, you listen, the ring doesn't make you married. It's just a sign. Reminds you of, of what you cling to and what you run away from. It, re, it reminds you, listen, it doesn't make you mature, but it points to a maturity. You grow into everything you meant when you said those vows even when you didn't fully know what you meant. Today, for us as believers who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his death and his resurrection, our sign, one is baptism. That we're baptized into this community of believers. The other is communion. When we observe it and we eat the bread and drink the cup, and we say, and we do this in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a sign that reminds us who we are, whose we are, and why we are whose we are. Well, the rest of the chapter, Sarah's going to get included. Her name's going to get changed. Her name, Princess, and it's fitting that she's a princess because kings will come from her. Abraham will have a moment as he hears what God says about a son that will come from Sarah. He'll, as he falls down to worship, it kind of hit his funny bone and he can't help but laugh, although God doesn't seem to get mad about that. He just says, hey, look, this is my plan. Your age may bother you. Your age does not bother me. And the way Paul will say it in Romans chapter 4, the very birth of Isaac was God bringing life from death. From a man who was as good as dead through a womb that was as good as dead. God brought life 
and his name is Isaac. His name is laughter. It's as though God laughs at death in the end. He gets specific, make sure Abram and Sarah don't make any uh, other decisions based upon technicalities. It will be you, Abram, and it will be Sarah. And from you will come Isaac. The impossible will become possible. In fact, it will happen one year from now. You know what Abram does? He believes God. And the rest of the chapter shows you what it looks like when you believe God with your shoes on and a, and a flint knife in your hand. He does what God commanded. And he does it because he believes Listen, sanctification, what we're called to, what we're doing in this Christian life, it is the Word of God, who He is, it's revealed. That brings us to a place of, of worshiping God, our, our impulse to Him. It's walking before God. In all the days of our life, And in doing that, becoming who we are, this wholeness, blamelessness, righteousness before him. We experience that more and more. But I'll tell you, as Eugene Peterson talks about in his book, he's got a, he's got a book, and the book, the whole, the title is worth the price of the book. It's a long obedience in the same direction. See, for many of us, we need to be reminded of that this morning. You can't, don't want you to walk out of here using boredom as an excuse to jettison the sanctification journey that you're on. I don't want you to walk out of here with the excuse of, well, I just haven't felt it in a while, or I haven't gotten goosebumps, or the emotions just aren't there, that those things do not define who you are in Christ. Peterson says, and I'll close with this, he says, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. We live in what one writer called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity to it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that nurtures and kindles our feelings for God. It is not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship.
when we obey the command to praise God, to worship Him, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. It's walking out of here saying, I know who you are, God, and I will worship you. And that changes how we approach our relationship with him. He has not forgotten you. He bit you. Come walk before me. Come live your life before me. Give yourself wholly to me. The Lord God Almighty. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds. I, Father, I realize in this room that there are people who are at all different places in their spiritual life, in their spiritual walk, in their spiritual maturity. And Father, there are people all over this room that up to this point have experienced Christianity differently from each other. And yet, Father, you are the same God. Your Son, Jesus, is our same Savior. Father, it is your one Spirit that indwells each of us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to catch a glimpse of who you are. And by seeing who you are more rightly, we would, Father, we'd be, we'd be drawn, we'd be compelled, we would be propelled into walking with you, walking before you. And Father, that our walking before you, our proximity to you would be transformative to us. So for some, Father, I pray they would be encouraged in the ordinariness of their days. Father, I pray others would be encouraged to seek you in your word. Father, you've promised that you will be found and that your word does not return void. It's living and active. And so, Father, I pray for so many to meet you there. Father, we thank you for who you are, the Lord God Almighty, the God of covenant, eternal, everlasting covenant, the God of resurrection, the God of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray by the power of your Spirit. Amen.